Well, good morning, City Light uh, and Mission Church for being here this morning. Um, as Gavin said, my name is Andrew, and, and it really is bittersweet, even for my wife and I, that uh, you know, this spring, these last few weeks that we have uh, are here now before we actually go out and plan. So I wanted to start, though, and just give you guys a really quick kind of update on some stuff that's going on with the Exarvin Church. And so, um, you know, we started last fall, we kind of announced it, that we were going to plant this church, and God has been so faithful. Like, we've seen Him bring now about 130 or 140 people that have committed to be on the core team that's going to go and be this congregation for this new church. Yeah, I mean, it's been amazing. Uh, you know, we've seen college students, young adults, young couples and families, uh, and even some sweet, wise, gray hairs are in the group. And so we love it. It is awesome to see just the diverse kind of group that God is bringing uh, to us. And so uh, things are going well, but I do want to say one thing and just ask you guys, man, would you seriously commit to just praying for us? You know, we, we continually need prayer. Like God has been so faithful but even in this season, we're planning to, to launch out here in under a couple months now. And, you know, we're still trying to finalize a building to meet in. You know, we're still fundraising to make sure that we actually have the money to do this. We're, we're still recruiting and getting people on board. Uh, we're still launching city groups and, and watching uh, people scatter throughout the city. And so uh, would you pray for us? Uh, we would really appreciate it. And also, you know, even if God this morning is just kind of stirring up something, there's something that, that you feel like, man, God is telling me to help in this way, or, you know, you got a building in Exarban that you've been holding out on us, and you want to give that to us, <laughs> take that too. Uh, but even just, man, even if it's just a word of encouragement where you feel like, man, the Lord just wants you to hear this, uh, I'd love to talk to you afterwards uh, and just hear from you uh, and how you'd want to help or, or what you feel like God is saying. And so... Uh, that's what's going on with us at City Light Exarbin, uh, but we're here this morning to continue on in our series in John. So if you've got a Bible, go John chapter 5. Flip John chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be there this entire morning. And as you're going there, uh, I want to start by just asking you guys a question. Uh, have, you, have you ever made a kind of a maybe a bold or somewhat outlandish claim that maybe you really didn't have the evidence or the authority to make? Do you ever make a statement or kind of a claim about something that, that really you couldn't actually back up that well? You know, I, was, uh, I got guilty of this this last fall. I've said this from here before. I'm a huge Minnesota Vikings sports fan, and so uh, that's their NFL team. And so before this NFL season... I found myself making a few claims to some people uh, that this was the year. Like, they were going to the Super Bowl. They were going to win it this year. Now, if you don't follow the NFL, that's a little bit bold for two reasons. One, uh, they've actually never won the Super Bowl in like the 50-some Super Bowls. And two, they've actually been pretty bad the last few years. So it was a little bit crazy. I kind of went out on a limb, made the claim. And then you know when you, when you make claims like that, you say something that's just kind of a little bit crazy, and it starts unraveling a little bit, you find yourself having to kind of make some excuses or kind of weasel your way out of the corner that you backed yourself into, right? Like you kind of start saying, well, you know, they would have won the Super Bowl, but you see those injuries, like, I mean, no one could have seen that coming. Like, of course, they would have, or, and I know that some of you guys do this because every fall I hear about it, about Husker football, that... This is the year, like it's it, 
and they go 7-0, and and you're feeling pretty good, and then they start getting trashed, and it's like, well, but they wouldn't have lost 62-3, to but those refs, I mean, come on, like, you, you know, and, or what we'll do is we'll kind of start making statements like, oh, you thought I said they'd win the Super Bowl, no, 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 I, what I really meant was, you know, and we just kind of get our way out of these claims, well, I think as we continue to move forward in the book of John, really over the next five chapters, we're going to start seeing Jesus making some pretty bold claims. He's going to start saying some kind of crazy things. And specifically in our text this morning, Jesus is going to try and convince the people he's speaking to of one of the most bold, outlandish, mind-boggling claims that they have ever heard. This 30-year-old carpenter from Nazareth is going to try and convince them that he is God. Now, my claim about the Vikings, that might be a little bold, but this guy standing here in front of his peers saying, hey, I'm God, right? Now, that's, that's crazy. This is so bold. And when we usually have to kind of back our way out of it, make some excuses, and kind of you know, backpedal from these claims... What we're going to find this morning is that Jesus doesn't do that. He's actually going to press in even further. He's going to go even stronger, and he's going to tell them that he is God. And then he's actually going to give proof to them for why they should have seen it coming. Okay, so we have kind of a rather long text this morning, but we're just going to split it up into those two points. We're going to see the the claims of Jesus, and then we're going to see the proof for Jesus. And City Light... I think we need this text this morning because it is so easy for us to have such a skewed view of who Jesus actually is. You know, oftentimes I think even in the church, we love to think of Jesus as just a a mild, meek, kind of sweet, tolerant, pacifist that never wants to shake anything up, never wants to be divisive, never wants to say anything too crazy, that he's just tolerant of everything and wants everyone to be happy. And we're going to see Jesus completely go against that view this morning. Others of you, maybe you've heard a preacher say before, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, you got to believe Jesus is God. But maybe you've heard scholars like Bart Ehrman and others that are growing in popularity who are saying, you know, Jesus never actually claimed that he was God. Like that was something the early church kind of put on him because they wanted to follow him. But Jesus never actually said that. And again, this morning, we're actually going to get a unique look into Jesus actually making this claim. And we've got to remember the whole book of John is so that we may actually believe rightly about Jesus. And so for us this morning, we need this text to reorient our view of who Jesus actually is. Is. So we're going to be in John chapter 5. We're going to look at the claims of Jesus and the proof for Jesus. So uh, we're going to start in verse 19 looking at the claim of Jesus. Now, if you weren't here last week, we looked at this scene where Jesus healed a man. Some religious leaders didn't like that so much. And he said, well, you know, my father, God the Father is working and I'm working with him. And they kind of go, okay, wow. It sounds like you're saying you're equal to God. Okay, so that's his claim that he's kind of making where we think maybe he's going to push back. And actually starting in verse 19, he's going to press in even further. So we're going to actually see uh, three different ways that he explains the claim that he is God. So the first one is that he is the true son of God. Look at verse 19. 
So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So Jesus' first example of explaining to them why he is God is that he is saying that he has a unique relationship with God the Father as his Son. Now the way he kind of explains this uh, isn't too crazy. He's basically saying uh, that his relationship with the Father is proven because he loves only doing what the Father does. The Father shows him what to do. He wants to, to do what the Father is asking him. And the Father loves and, and, and gives honor and, and finds enjoyment in having the Son come alongside him. Now, we, we would think like this too. We have phrases, right? Like, like Father, like Son. Right? There are many sons grow up and they want to be just like dad, right? We, you know, we want to do the things that he does. We want to be as strong as our dad is, right? Many sons grow up to look just like their dad. And many fathers, right, if you're a father in here, don't you find enjoyment in bringing your son along into the work that you do? Kind of passing on your work to your son, having him join you in that. that there's this unique type of relationship between a father and a son that's that's only that, that, that you don't have with any other children that's just really unique to them. Well, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that, that I am God because I have this unique relationship as God the Son. Now, we may have heard this before, something like this, and, and not think much of it. We may think, okay, well, he's the Son of God. But we have to remember that this audience would think something a little different. You see, for them, they've heard this idea about the Son of God before. You see, throughout the Old Testament, there were places where it actually spoke of this Son of God. One of them is Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, it's this whole psalm where God is speaking, and He says, I am going to have my anointed one, my king. I'm going to set him as king over Zion. Or in other words, I'm going to, he's going to be the king over my people. And He says, he's not just going to be some random king. He's actually going to be my son. So God's own son is going to come and he is going to rule and reign. The psalm goes on to say that he's not only going to reign in Jerusalem, but all the nations of the world will be judged by this son. That he's going to have authority over all things. That if you don't submit to the son, you will be wiped off the face of the earth. But he says, if you, he says, kiss the son. If you worship Him, if you submit to Him, if you love Him, you will find refuge and comfort. So with that view of the Son of God, the view that this Son was going to rule over the nations, was going to have more authority than anyone else, they now get Jesus walking onto the scene saying, that Son is here and I'm Him. Or this is a crazy claim to say that God's own son is actually here now. And Jesus is saying, this is me. But he even goes further. He doesn't just say he's the son of God, but he says that he has the power to give life. Look at verse 23. He's saying, so that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So again, any good religious Jew at this time, I think would be shocked at this statement, kind of for two reasons. One, they knew that God himself said that he will not give glory to any other name above his own. And secondly, they knew that God, Yahweh, alone had the power to raise the dead to life. Only God. And they saw this through texts like Isaiah 48, 11. God is speaking to his people and he says, it is for my namesake that I act. For my namesake will I do this. My glory I will give to none other. He's saying there is no one will be honored above my name. And then they would also probably think of texts like Ezekiel 37, which is this imagery of this field This valley that is covered in dry bones, it says. Just a field of bones. And God comes in and he says, I'm going to speak. And at the power of my word alone, these bones will form and have life. It is God alone that is glorified. And it is God alone that can bring dead bones to life. And now Jesus comes in and he says, if you want to honor and glorify the Father you got to honor me. And the power to bring the spiritually dead back to life comes from my voice. You see, he is claiming attributes and characteristics and power that only God has. He is making it very clear to them that he is God. But he goes on one more time. He's going to say not only that, but he also has the authority to judge. Look with me, verse 27. And he has given him, the son, authority to execute judgment, because he is the son of man. Now do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Okay. With this one, I think, can we just stop and just acknowledge that when we hear these ideas of being judged, I mean, doesn't that kind of raise up this kind of like inner defense system that we we don't really like this, right? Like if, if you feel like someone is judging you, doesn't that kind of put you on the defensive a little bit? Like, like we believe, hey, you don't you don't have the right to judge me, let alone a man saying, I'm going to I'm going to judge you for everything you've done, right? Like that just raises this like this is kind of crazy. We've even talked about this that that we feel like, man, you do, you don't have the right to judge the foods that I eat and the foods that I don't eat. Right? You don't you don't have the right to judge where I send my kids to school. Like Chris said last week, you don't have the right to t- tell me what oils I can and cannot have and how skinny my pants need to be. Like that you don't you don't get to judge me like I do what I want to do right but I think 
that even though we, we, just, we don't like it when other people are judging us, most of us would at least admit, okay, if there's a God, if this God is real, if He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-just, perfect, then He probably has the right to judge, right? You don't judge me, but God can probably judge me. You know, even Chris reminded me um, this week as we were talking about this of his favorite scholar and writer, uh, Tupac, who once said, only God can judge me, right? That even he got it right. He even saying, hey, you don't judge me, but God can judge me. Most of us, it doesn't matter if you're uh, a first century Jew, if you're an American in 2017, or you're Tupac. Like, we get this idea that, okay, God can judge me. He's the ultimate judge. This is riddled throughout the Old Testament that they would know the ultimate judge is God. And now they have this 30-year-old carpenter walking around saying, I am now that judge. Like think about how crazy that is. Like if if I were to stand up here in front of you all and say, hey, y'all are going to die. And on that day, you're going to face the pearly white gates and guess who's on the throne? This guy. Well, that's like crazy. Like, you, you would freak out too, like these people. This is a crazy claim to make. These are bold claims that Jesus is saying. And don't miss this. To his audience, he is 100% claiming, I am God. There's no other way around this. He is claiming attributes and characteristics that are only reserved for God and saying, that is now me. That, that he has this relationship with the God the Father as his son. That he has been given the authority and the power to give life. And on that last day, he is going to be the one who judges. And so, City Light, the question for us this morning is, will you believe this? Like, do you genuinely believe this message? Because the reality is, Jesus is teaching here that on the last day, we will all face judgment. That he will be the judge. And, and in verse 29, it says, those who do good go to eternal life. And those who do evil will face a greater judgment and separation from God. Now, at first reading of that, it might kind of seem like, okay... Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, right? But if we look at what the Bible as a whole teaches, it teaches that there is not one that does good. He says there's not one that loves the light, that in our sinful flesh, that loves honoring God, but in our sin we love the darkness. That there is no one who is good. So according to this, It's not good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. It is. Everyone is under the weight and condemnation of our sin. That we cannot get to life when we are spiritually dead in our sins. But the good news is if you remember back to John chapter 3, Jesus taught that even those who love the darkness, even those who do evil, all of us, That if you believe on Him, if you see the light of Christ, that He will raise you to new life. And it is those who do good, He says. It's those who love the light that do good. So what Jesus is teaching here is that in order to do good, to resurrect life, you have to first be completely changed on the inside. 
He's not saying that it's just, it's the good that you do that will save you. It is the proof that you're living. The good only comes after you have been raised to life by Jesus. And verse 24 says, Those who are raised from death to life are the ones that hear my words and believe. That the only way for for sinners like all of us to be raised from spiritual death to spiritual life is to place our faith that Jesus, the Son of God, came to die on a cross to forgive us of our sins and make all things new. So you're like, do you believe this? Because on that last day when you're facing judgment and Jesus is there, He's not going to ask you, how many times you went to church, how many groups you led, how many serving teams you were on, how many verses you memorized, he's going to ask, did you hear his voice and believe? Jesus is clearly teaching us in this first section that he is God, and it is by his word alone that we can be saved. But what Jesus does, unlike a lot of the bold, far-fetched claims that we make, See, he doesn't just say that and leave us, but he actually is going to give us proof for that. So he actually backs this up. Look with me in verse 31. Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Now, uh, if you didn't know, the, the Bible, it wasn't actually written in English. This was, John's Gospel was actually written in Greek. And as it was translated to English, they, they kind of added uh, this word alone and this word deem to try and help us understand what Jesus is saying. But if you really just translate it straight from the Greek, all this is is, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. That's it. He's saying, if, it's, if I'm just a crazy guy up here saying, hey, believe in me, I'm the son of God, then it's not true. It's kind of like, uh, you know, if you're a golfer and you hit a hole in one, right? If there's no one standing there to witness that, didn't happen. Like, sorry, like it just didn't. If you're just walking around, I had a hole in one. Well, who can verify? Well, you know, they, they weren't there at the time. You know, they were looking the other way. Didn't happen. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if I'm just this crazy guy out here saying, hey, Believe in me, I'm God. He's like, then, then don't believe it. But the second half of our text, he actually walks through three different witnesses that point as proof to these people that he is God. So look with me, three different proofs for Jesus quickly. First, he's going to show us God's prophet. Look at verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So Jesus here is recalling for us John the Baptist. So not the author of this book, but but John the Baptist that we looked at a few weeks ago. And Jesus is reminding them, hey, John was was God's prophet. He was God's man. And he came onto the scene and he started preaching to you guys and you liked it for a while. Like you were all on board for a little bit. And then John kind of turned and he became a Jesus freak a little bit. He came and he started saying, okay, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is right here. 
And he said, they didn't, they didn't like it so much anymore, right? Like, they didn't like that switch that John made. They said, okay, now everything that I've been teaching, all the truth about God, it's right here in Jesus. John's whole life mission can probably be summed up in his famous line, I must decrease, but he, Jesus, must increase. This was John's whole mission. And Jesus is saying, he came to you as proof, as a witness, so that you would believe in me. So friends, I would ask, um, do you have that, that friend or that family member who, like John, maybe you thought was cool for a little while and then just keeps telling you about Jesus? Just consistently, time and time again, just wants to talk to you about what Jesus has done in their life. And how you should come to church. I mean, maybe you're sitting next to that person right now because they said, I mean, you've got to come hear about this Jesus guy, right? What Jesus is telling them is that God actually sends his people as a witness to the world to tell them about what Jesus has done. And City Light, just as a side note, man, I would say I love that our church is built on that foundation that says, look, hey, it's not about us. It's not about buildings and money and donuts and this marketing strategy. Like, that's not what it's about. We're just here to tell you about Jesus. Like, that's, that's what we do. We must decrease. He must increase. That our church, I love that I meet people that say, man, every week I come, I consistently hear about Jesus. Because like John the Baptist, God has changed us, used us, so that we can point our city and the nations to this Jesus. Because so often, this is how God works. He uses people who have been changed by Jesus to be a witness for Jesus. So would that be us? Now let's go on. The second proof that he's going to give them, second witness that he calls, um, is God's works. So he says, not only John, but the Father himself bears witness through these works. So look with me, verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of even John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have not heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So the question then to ask is, okay, he's saying, look, the Father, God the Father even bore witness about me by giving me these works, the very works that I am doing. So what are these works? Well, throughout the Old Testament, there's tons of prophecies to point God's people to see when Jesus came, when the Son came, they would be able to know by these works. We see things in the Old Testament that, that He would bring good news to the poor. He would bind up the brokenhearted. He would liberate the captives, comfort those who mourn, feed those who are hungry, heal those who are sick, build up what was broken, give honor to those who were shamed, and ultimately give life to those who were dead. And City Light, what God prophesied this Messiah would do, Jesus was living out right in front of them. I mean, just last week, we saw how he healed out of nowhere this man. Next week, we're going to see how he feeds 5,000 hungry people. We're going to see miracle after miracle, all these times where Jesus is compassionate to people and walks with the poor and the brokenhearted. And we're ultimately going to see Jesus face 
the cross to shed his blood so that he could reverse the effects of sin once and for all. He's telling them, these works that I am doing prove, they're proof for who I am. And see, like, we believe here that Jesus still works like this today, that there are still works in our midst that point to Jesus being the true Son of God. You know, we believe that Jesus can still heal the sick, that he can still do the, the unthinkable, that he can still bring the spiritually dead back to life in him. And these works, when we see these things in our midst, they're testimonies to the work that Jesus did on the cross. He's saying that God's God's people will testify about me. These crazy works of God will testify about me. But lastly, he's going to say, even God's word will testify about me. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you would receive him. But how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. But if you would have believed in Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So this last section, Jesus is going to attack them one more time with their own scriptures. Right? The old, our Old Testament here, right? These are, are the scriptures that, that these religious leaders, they loved. They loved memorizing and teaching and talking about. They loved these scriptures. But what Jesus is saying is that they don't even understand them simply because they don't really want to. We see that in verse 39. He says, you're approaching scriptures wrong because you are looking at scripture to find life. He said, but you completely missed it because, verse 44, he says, you would rather have glory from other men than actually finding life in scriptures. Do you see that? That he's saying here, hey, these, these scriptures, you're, you're not actually trying to figure out what they're saying. You're trying to use them to make other people think you're really cool or smart or great. And I mean, haven't we been in that spot sometimes? Maybe you've used this book not to really find out what it's about. Maybe you've been here to hear sermons, not to... Not to really find out how to find life, but just so maybe you can look good in your city group. Right? Maybe you've used this book just to gain acceptance from the people around you. Maybe you've wanted to look good for the, the Christian guy or girl that you think is cute. Right? Like We've wanted people to think we're smart, that we're wise, that we're put together. You know, Gavin kind of mentioned this, but before I became a Christian in college, this was my story. You know, I grew up uh, going to church. I grew up going to a Christian school. I memorized some stuff. And when I got into college, I got into a college community, uh, a ministry, where I saw that the, the leaders, the respected ones, the people that everybody liked, 
they were talking about this theology and about verses and stuff that I had no idea what they were talking about. But I did notice that everyone liked those people. So I thought, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I need to become a leader, and I need to start memorizing some of this stuff and figuring out some theology. And so I started doing that, and I completely missed the point. I was using this book to try and gain acceptance from people to find what I thought would actually be validation in life in and of itself, and I completely missed the life that these words offer. So what's the point? What is the point of these words? Well, again, in verse 39, Jesus says, You've searched to find life in the Scriptures, but it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He even says, look, you set your hope on Moses and his writings and the law. It was Moses that was actually teaching about me. He says, you missed the whole point because all of Scripture actually points to Jesus. That we believe this book from Genesis to now we have Revelation all centers around Jesus. That he was the point of all of this. Everything that God wanted to do throughout all of redemptive history was centering around this man, the Son of God, Jesus, that that's what it was about, that these words in this book don't have eternal life in themselves, but they are God's truth leading you to find life in Jesus. He's saying, if you would read the scriptures to find true life, you would find it in me. Friends, these are some bold claims. Jesus is laying out for them that everything in all of history actually centers on me. That that son who's going to rule the world is me. That if you want to find life, it's found in me. That one day you're going to be judged, and you're going to be judged by me. That God's people witness to me. That God himself witnesses to me. And that God's own revealed word witnesses to me. And the question for us this morning is, do we believe this? Do you genuinely believe this? John says that he wrote his gospel so that you may believe Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, you may have eternal life in him. So I would ask you, for some of you, maybe for the very first time in your life, you're hearing the words of Jesus from this text Would you respond by believing? He says, if you do that this morning, if you respond in faith that he is the true son of God who died for your sins so that you could find life in him alone, that right now in this moment you can pass from spiritual death to spiritual life with him forever. Would you do that this morning? And for the rest of us, church, if you've believed this message maybe for years, I would ask, could we reorient our minds on this Jesus? Can we give up this mild, tolerant, sweet, everybody's buddy Jesus? He's going to make some claims. He's going to push against things in our culture. And will we follow suit to, to land with him? Would we believe this? Would we live in submission to this? And would we praise this Jesus? Friends, we're going to respond this morning through taking communion. And we're going to take communion because we believe this message. 
So when you come forward to take communion, what you're doing is you're taking the bread, you're dipping it in the juice, and in that you are proclaiming your faith in Jesus, that there's no other way to life except through the death of Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you're still wrestling with that, maybe you're still not quite there yet, we love that you're working through this book with us, but we would ask this morning, would you just stay in your seat? Because as you come forward to take communion, what you're doing is you're actually proclaiming your faith and hope is solely set on Jesus. So friends, if that's you this morning, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing, and I would invite you whenever you feel free. uh, We're going to have some stations in the front. We'll have some stations in the back. There's actually a gluten-free option in the back as well. Uh, And whenever you feel free, would you come forward? They're going to tear off the bread. You'll dip it in the juice, and in that you are going to proclaim that your faith is in the broken body and shed blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father God, you are so good to us that you would love us to send your only Son to die for us. God, would we believe that um, firmly this morning? Would some people in this room believe for the very first time would they pass from spiritual death to spiritual life right now not by any other works but by you alone friends I want to say if that is any of you we're going to have a prayer team in the back if you made that decision this morning we would encourage you walk to the back we've got a prayer team there that would love to hear your story process through this with you and pray with you if this morning is the morning you pass from spiritual death to spiritual life Thank you.